Welcome to the Techstars Climate Tech Podcast, where we dive into the climate change crisis and discuss how technology and innovations can help save our planet. We're your hosts, Cody Sims and Hannah Davis. Join us as we talk with sustainability experts, investors, and founders about the issues we're collectively facing today due to climate change and how entrepreneurship can help. Today on the show, we have two Techstars alumni, Yoav Lori, who co-founded Simple Energy and is now a climate tech investor, and Steph Spears, co-founder and CEO at Solstice. Today, we're going to discuss energy and electrification and what that looks like through the technologies and programs such as community solar and power utility programs. And we'll talk about their experiences being founders in the climate tech space and their advice for other entrepreneurs. So grateful to have both of you here today. I'm particularly excited to have two Techstars alumni and would love to just kick off today with hearing your stories. So Steph, let's start with you. What's your journey to founding Solstice? So I never wanted to be an entrepreneur because my dad was actually a failed entrepreneur, but I was working in government on the Arab Spring. I was working for the Obama administration on Middle East policy, counterterrorism, and national security, actually. And we would be in the Middle East and people would be lined up waiting for fuel in Yemen, where I was working, and they couldn't get enough fuel to power their everyday lives. And we were spending all of our times working on counterterrorism and getting a dictator out of power and nothing really related to energy. So that's what prompted me to realize the geopolitics of oil are broken and we really need to fix that using renewables. So I transitioned to work on renewables first in India and Pakistan, worked on solar microgrids, solar home systems and solar lanterns out there and had another come to Jesus moment, if you will about why am I halfway across the world when back home in America, so many people don't have access to clean energy. In fact, the people who need solar savings the most, like low-income customers, definitely don't have access. And so that's why we started Solstice, is to make solar access and clean energy more democratized, make it more accessible, and make it simpler for customers. Thank you. A lot there. I'm going to bookmark some of that to come back to later. But first, Yoav, can you tell us a bit about founding Simple Energy and the transition to Uplate? Yeah, my co-founder, Justin Siegel, and I founded Simple Energy right in 2010 and went through Techstars in 2011. At first, a lot of folks asked, how'd you come up with the idea? And, and we did not. We first knew that we wanted to work together on building a company that mattered, that had a positive social impact in what we did. And then we started to look for problems that we could go solve. He pushed us towards energy. I pushed us towards software. Together, we combined to create software that helped people save energy. We played in that market for quite some time, eventually creating what became the leader in smart thermostats or getting folks connected to energy saving solutions in their homes, as well as informing them about their own energy use through behavioral science and data analytics. That grew to be a pretty good sized company at Simple Energy. In 2018, we partnered with AES, Global Fortune 200 energy company, to get us to the next level. We knew that there were a lot of smaller companies in our space that we thought there'd be a real opportunity to consolidate those. And so we endeavored to go do that. At the same time, another company that actually our lead mentor in Techstars had founded a few years before we got started, but was also in Boulder, Colorado, where we were based, a company called Tendril, was starting down the same path where they were also starting to look at acquiring other companies. They had been bought by a private equity firm. And so what we realized was that the best way to 
move forward would not be to compete on that, but actually to combine forces of our two companies, both companies that are very mission aligned in Boulder, Colorado, working on the same problems, pursuing the same strategies. And so we did that. And then in the middle of 2019, we announced the merger of our two companies, as well as three other acquisitions. And in 60 days, pulled together five companies and launched what is now Uplight. And Uplight is the leader on gain utilities to engage their customers, business and commercial in energy saving activities, whether that's reducing their energy usage or changing what time of day they use energy and managing it to meet the needs of the grids and support renewables. Awesome. Thank you. A lot you two cover between your two companies. Yeah, Yoav is so humble about what he's built. And he's built this incredible company that's merged with other incredible companies and is a leader in changing how the utility industry is interacting with their consumers. And that's very cool. So I just don't want to let that escape from the conversation either. Steph, thanks for saying that. You're, Steph's one of my heroes in this space and someone who I think the world of. So that means a tremendous amount coming from you. Mutual Appreciation Club is real. Awesome. So what I was thinking is we could dive a little bit into each of your sectors and then zoom back out broader around energy electrification, talk a bit about equity and about your companies and your journey. Steph, can you just start by talking a little bit about how community solar works? Community solar sprung up and it sprung up very quickly. It's really was commercialized starting maybe five years ago on a major way. And it's grown more than double each of the years since. And it's predicted to continue to more than double each year for the next decade, according to analysts in the energy industry. So community solar sprung up because most people, unfortunately, cannot put solar on their own home. There are a lot of reasons why people can't put solar on their own home, like their rooftop is ineligible because it's flat or it's facing the wrong way or it's made out of the wrong materials or it has a tree covering their roof, or they don't control their roof. They're a condo owner or a renter. Or the last reason is generally they can't afford to put solar on their roof. Like they don't have the 10 to $40,000 at a cost up front or the right FICO credit score to get access to solar financing. So you do have to be a unicorn to put solar on your home. And if you can, if you are one of those unicorns, you should absolutely do it. But for the rest of us, for 80% of Americans that can't do that, community solar is a way for people to participate in the clean energy revolution by buying a portion of a shared solar farm that's somewhere centrally located. And the way most projects work in this country, it's a subscription model. So you're just paying for the power that's produced by your portion of a shared solar farm. And mostly you're getting guaranteed discounts compared to what you're paying the utility for that power. So you're not putting anything on your home, you're not paying anything up front, and you're getting a good discount on your electricity bill. So it happens to be the most affordable and accessible way that a lot of people can switch to clean energy. So people tend to save around $150 a year on their electricity bills, which is approximately equal to about 10% off their electricity bill. And They're not plugging directly into the solar farm like a microgrid. The electricity is flowing back to the grid and people are seeing a credit that shows up on their monthly utility bill for the power that's produced by their portion. We'll be sure to put your website in our show notes because I can't see how someone would listen to that and not want to go out and subscribe to Community Solar. And Yoav, talk about behavior energy efficiency programs. You also help folks save money through energy efficiency. What is that and why is it needed? So the primary piece of Uplight's business and of that market is getting customers to save energy through making changes to their home and how their home manages energy. The first and 
pre direct question we would always get is who pays you and how does that work? And our customers were electric and gas utilities and those companies, whether that's PG&E or National Grid, Con Ed, just naming some of the, not necessarily our customers, but big utilities that people might know, those local power companies pay companies like ours, Uplight or others, to get their customers, to provide them the software and services to get their customers to save energy or to install a thermostat that shifts their energy usage to a different time of day. Maybe that helps them do a retrofit or reseal their windows, something of that sort. And now the reason they would do that, the second follow-on question we always get is why would these companies pay you to get their customers to use less of their product? Because people often think utilities get paid for selling energy. And in fact, in most places in the United States, utilities are not getting paid directly for selling power to customers, selling electricity to their end customers. Rather, they're getting paid for a whole lot of other things, like the investment in the infrastructure and building out the power plants or building out the poles and wires or just being good managers of their systems. And one of those things that their regulator who decides exactly what they get paid for will pay them for is energy efficiency. So they will actually create energy efficiency goals and they will get the utilities to put in programs for their customers that they spend hundreds of millions or billions of dollars on every year. They get their customers to use less of their products. And so we were among the companies that using software would get people to reduce their energy consumption by sending them a message about their energy use, how it compares to neighbors, how it compares to similar homes or to more efficient homes. We would have an e-commerce site where they could get an instant rebate on an energy saving product or service. And then once they actually had that product, we would actually control it and manage their energy usage to make it align to what the needs of the power grid are, because then Wholesale power markets can be pretty crazy. And by reducing someone's energy use when it's still hot, but the sun has gone down and everyone's turning on their AC, moderating the usage there can have a really big impact on the grid. I'd love to dig into that a little bit more, hearing about peak power times and the grid and how they work exactly. And then Steph, maybe you can jump in with how does community solar impact that? And are you using storage and batteries? Does it flow directly into the grid immediately? I think that sometimes you hear of a tension between the distributed generation world of rooftop solar and community solar and demand response and the centralized generation world of that's really where a lot of the utility monopolies have existed thus far because it's business as usual versus the future way we're going to generate our power. And so there are, as you go from one to the other in a transition, there are going to be some tensions. And community solar is often at the forefront of that tension discussion because the more people that switch to community solar and exercise their choice in saying, I would like to support local clean energy and I would like to also financially benefit from a local solar farm, the more people that do that in a lot of utility territories, the less money the utility is seeing for selling their electricity supply to these customers. And that interaction with our utility partners has changed over time. Initially, utilities were very much against community solar. They didn't want to see it. There was a lot of lobbying in our state of Massachusetts where we're based against community solar programs. And then in the last two years, we've seen a sea change where utilities are starting to do their own community solar pilots. They're realizing this industry is going too quickly. It's not going away And we need more renewables for the sake of the climate. And so the utilities are getting in the business themselves. And you'll see a lot more of the growth from the community solar industry coming from utilities either building or supporting the downstream user experience for community solar projects, which is really exciting. 
on a landscape level, there are 42 states in the country that have some sort of community solar project. About half those states, the state legislatures have passed laws saying people can benefit from community solar and the utilities are legally obligated to let them do it. In the other half of those states, utilities are taking a lead role in building out those pilots. So we're seeing the very early stages of that utility community solar interaction right now, but it's becoming more and more of a collaborative environment. You asked really quickly about storage. The only thing is storage has not been a big part of community solar projects to date because they're still a little bit too expensive to add to projects and have them pencil out. But that's going to change rapidly in the next five to 10 years. And there's no denying that we need more storage to be able to know how to sell power back to the grid at times when the power is most needed. I'm curious, since you both come from different angles of this, how do you both see demand for energy changing in the next decade as more things electrify? And what do you think needs to happen across the energy system to allow for that? You spoke a little bit about the kind of centralized versus decentralized stuff, but is there anything else? We have so many exciting things happening in the power markets right now. The rise of electric vehicles, I would argue the top of those on the demand side, there's just going to be this wholesale shift from powering cars with gasoline to powering them with electrons. Then the question is, how did we make that electron? And we can either have made it historically by burning some fossil fuel, whether that's coal or natural gas, tends to be you have a power plant and you're just taking something out of the earth and burning it. And it's obviously pretty terrible for the environment and for our future. And more and more, we're now able to create that electron using solar energy or wind energy. The challenges, obviously, are that the sun doesn't shine at night or that wind can be inconsistent. So then you have to have a combination of sources and energy storage in order to balance that. Electric vehicles certainly are a piece of that. And then you have other forms of electrification in the home that will become part of it. But the primary new form of consumption is coming from the vehicles in the future. Then the question is, how do you manage that? And I think one of the most exciting pieces is the digitization of energy consumption. As things are electric, including an electric vehicle, you can manage when it charges. So if there is this irregularity of energy production that's simply dependent on the force of the wind or the sun, but you have enough storage in your vehicle to last through that, you can charge your vehicle when it's sunny or when it's windy. And that's a very simplified view of it, but you can extrapolate that to its conclusion where you're actually able to manage lots of elements on the power grid and lots of elements within someone's home or business that map to the production of clean energy and to when energy is the cheapest, which is usually at the same time. So when energy is being produced in large amounts through solar or wind, that's also when energy is the cheapest on the power grids. And so that is the time where you want to be charging all your electric vehicles, mining all your Bitcoin and heating or cooling all your houses. Plus one to everything you all said, as usual. But I think one of the other elements that's really exciting that's happening right now are just renewed calls for grid modernization. When we're actually working on a project by project level in clean energy, There are just incredible constraints around interconnection and fees associated with that are really linked to the fact that our grid is not really built to take on all of this new distributed generation capacity. And so that call we are hearing echoed in the federal administration at a time where we know infrastructure improvements will actually jumpstart a fledgling economy. And we need that so badly right now. And we're also seeing a lot more of a rise in demand response, demand response software, demand response companies are raising a lot of money right now. And we need the ability on a kind of grid level to manage our our demand and peak demand moments. And so we can minimize curtailments of clean energy generation. 
those are some of the most exciting things that are happening, I think, right now. I feel like we could talk about this one point for a while. But I did want to come back to something you said earlier, Steph, around Solstice being founded on the conviction that community solar could help build a more equitable energy system. Can you talk to us about how the old model wasn't equitable and how Solstice is doing things differently? Yeah. And I think when people talk about low-income customers in energy, they tend to think of either that group being really small and a minority or that group not being very engaged in renewable energy and the environment. I think those are all myths. We know those are all myths. Low-income customers, which tend to be disproportionately black and brown, have, according to studies, no less interest in the environment or renewables. They just tend to be less targeted by the industry for products and services. And our industry tends to be often at a premium product. And so how will we expect to get to 100% renewable or clean standards if we do not involve a big chunk of the United States that's considered low to moderate income, which is approximately 40% of the country, depending on what income level you're using. So low to moderate income Americans pay a disproportionate amount of their income on energy. They have a higher energy burden by 3x. They are disproportionately living next to fossil fuel facilities that are polluting their environments and they're suffering disproportionately from air pollution and asthma, which is linked to COVID morbidity as well which is highly unfair. And they live in hotter neighborhoods because they don't live next to green spaces. And they don't live next to clean energy facilities. Clean energy plants don't get built in low-income communities by and large. So all of these folks are suffering the most from climate change's effects and our reliance on fossil fuels. And they're still the least likely to get access to the new green economy. They're still the least likely to benefit from the wealth that is generated by the green transition. And so when we think of energy equity, we think about creating more benefits for local communities that are suffering the most from climate change to benefit from this new energy economy. And it's possible. What we do today determines whether the system is equitable tomorrow, because we're building all these systems today. And if we don't intentionally make sure that we're distributing the benefits to everyone, it will not happen organically. And that's a big reason why I'm such a huge fan of Steph. I speak so eloquently on this and has been fighting this fight. I want to double down on that because there's even more of a problem. When you look at Seth mentioned a lot of the challenges facing low-income customers, but we also know that low-income customers are much more likely to live in a house that's not well insulated. So they pay a higher percentage of their bill, but it's taking them to create a unit of energy or to get the end outcome, which is a warm house or a lit bedroom, actually takes them more energy because they're using a less efficient light bulb or heating a less efficient house than a more affluent household. Hopefully most folks know about food deserts where in low-income communities you can't necessarily buy fresh food as easily. The same thing actually exists in energy efficiency programs. There was a study that university did, I believe University of Minnesota study, where they went through and went to stores and tried to find energy efficient light bulbs. And it was much harder to find an energy efficient light bulb in a low income community than it was in a high income community. And these light bulbs are almost always subsidized by the utility and at a cheaper price point on the shelf. So you would find an incandescent bulb at a local supermarket sold in a one pack, as opposed to a pack of eight LEDs sold at Costco across town in a high income community. And it's a cheaper bulb and a much more efficient way to heat your house. And then all of the things that we're talking about, right, whether it's the Nest thermostat or a new electric vehicle or solar panels, all require some kind of capital investment. We've seen some good strides there. Google has 
program that's tried and there's some things on the edges, but by and large, the vast majority of low-income support from the energy industry has done one thing, which is subsidize people's bills. And I think in the state of California, they spend about $2 billion a year simply reducing the bills of low-income customers. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but when you reduce the price of something, economics tells us the demand for it goes up. And so you're actually disincentivizing energy efficiency measures when you reduce. And I'm not arguing against subsidizing these programs, but in fact, I think coupled with that, inserting programs that proactively go and retrofit homes and make homes more efficient and figure out a way to crack that nut. It worked with over 100 utilities and none of them have a really great answer to how to empower their low-income customers to really save energy, to become better consumers of energy and more efficient consumers of energy. They just haven't figured out how to do it. I think this is the most important conversation to have when talking about energy and electrification and the transition to renewables and a new economy. Thank you, Steph, for your leadership in this area. And Yoab, thanks for sharing all that. As I think about the listeners to this podcast, potential founders getting into the space and interested in starting companies in this space, I hope that they will first and foremost think about the equity behind what they're doing and how we can think about not just switching to renewables, but doing it in a just way for all. So I appreciate both of you for that. To wrap up, what's one piece of advice you have for an entrepreneur that wanted to embark on a climate-focused endeavor? We recently partnered with one of the largest wind and solar developers in the country. And we didn't think we were going to win that contract because we're a startup. We just started working on our first projects three years ago. There's no reason why we should have won that contract. And we were told by them that One, we explained the new community solar policy better to them than any of the other competitors. Two, we filled out the RFP completely. So answer all your questions on any RFP you fill out. And number three, that we had a community focus. And that was something they knew was going to be important in the future. So I would say that the beginning of our work, we found that working on energy equity and justice was a really lonely place to be. And not a lot of people wanted to support it because they saw it in conflict with some of other goals in climate. And I would encourage entrepreneurs to shoot for the highest levels and and winning the contracts from the largest companies, be ambitious, but also remember to be moral leaders and to do things even if they're unpopular at the time. Because climate is very popular right now as a topic, but that's pretty new. That was not the case when Yoav started his company much before we started ours, and it was not the case when we started our company. So don't be afraid to do the unpopular thing because the rest of the world is just going to catch up to your frontiersmanship. That's also going to help because there's a chance it stops being popular. And there's SPACs out there that are going to get blown up or the returns might not be what they are hyped to be. And you're going to need to weather that storm. The piece of advice that I'd give to an entrepreneur who's going after it is that especially a lot of folks are getting into the space who have these incredible backgrounds and incredible sense of mission and purpose. And it's wonderful. Oftentimes, they have a purity of how they're trying to address whatever issue they have. And in this market, and in many markets, running directly at the impact and change you want to have in the world sometimes works. But sometimes also stepping back for a second and thinking strategically about how do you step to the side to get closer to that outcome? And what I mean is not step aside, but step and do something that is slightly not expected. When we launched our marketplace, we had employees who left 
because they said, oh, you're becoming an e-commerce company. We're not purely behavioral energy efficiency anymore. You've lost sight of your mission. We're going to just start selling smart speakers and smart locks and things that are not associated. And yeah, we sold a couple smart speakers and smart locks on the way, but having a storefront where we were able to use the utilities brand to talk to customers about energy saving actually moved more smart thermostats than any other mechanism ever. It actually drove a huge in- impact, even though it was somewhat counterintuitive at the beginning, or it maybe looked like we were not going as hard at the final problem, which is to say, in order to have the impact, have a great business. In order to have the great impact, have customers. In order to have a great impact, have revenue. Like Do those things, make sure you have those things. And even if you feel like that thing that you're doing is a compromise in some way, think longer term about how it's positioning you to give you more of a platform to then have a bigger impact. Thank you both for your leadership in this space and for being here and for the example you set for Techstars alumni and beyond. Thanks for having us. Yeah, and thanks for doing this work. Thanks so much for listening today. We really hope you enjoyed the discussions. Check out the episode notes for links and more information. See you in the next episode of the Techstars Climate Tech Podcast.